Good morning. You may be seated. My name is David. I'm a postulant here at Incarnation, which means a deacon and then priest in training. By an act of providence today, we keep seeing those in this sermon series, I think, um, our reading on 1 Corinthians 15 coincides with Orthodox Easter. Um, you may be asking, wait, it's Easter again? Well, the Greek Orthodox Church never updated to the Gregorian calendar. They used the Julian calendar. And so Easter is a couple weeks delayed relative to Western Easter. In any case, I'm so happy I get to preach to you on Easter Sunday. Now, some of you might know, but maybe not many, how the Greek Orthodox greet one another on Easter, and I think it's fun to learn that. Um, in English, we say in our liturgy, Christ is risen, and the response is, he is risen indeed. Now, in Greek, this is using modern pronunciation, they say, Christos anesti, and in response, they say, Aledos anesti. So I want to try it with you guys today. I'll say the first part, and then you guys say the response, which to review is Aledos anesti. So here we go. Christos anesti. Happy Easter. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, we come full circle. It's tempting to view this chapter as the climax of the whole letter, and not just because I'm preaching on it, but because Paul here drills down to the foundational good news preached by him and all the apostles, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and therefore all who are in Christ will also be raised from the dead. By reiterating and expanding on this gospel, Paul also identifies and undermines corrects the most fundamental error that some factions in that church had embraced, namely that the dead are not raised. But we are treated here not to a simple back-to-basics lesson, though Paul does craftily frame it that way in verses 1 through 11. Jesus' resurrection is presented as, on the one hand, a historic fact, indeed, the fact of all facts the factiest fact. On the other hand, it is an event of cosmic significance and scope, an event in time, fact, but also the event that gives time its meaning, its reason for being, and it thus transcends time. The resurrection of Christ, in a word, connects time umbilically to eternity. Or as Paul puts it, the risen Christ is the last Adam, a life-giving spirit who sets in motion God becoming all in all. All of creation will be transfigured, transformed, as will we. Perhaps that sounds entirely too abstract. I'm good at that abstraction. So let's try to get a little more concrete. Let's start with identifying the error so we can understand Paul's correction. How do we go from a belief that bodies stay dead in the ground to the moral confusion among the factions in the Corinthian church? It appears that some of these believers latched on tightly to Paul's preaching on the spirit. And indeed, the spirit plays a central role in Paul's message. Scholars think that's why Paul's approach here 
with this audience in Corinth is a more gentle and conciliatory tone. If you compare it to, say, something like Galatians, which is far more aggressive, because Paul is assuming here some responsibility for the confusion. We can imagine that during Paul's time spent previously with the Corinthians, he proclaimed a message on Christian freedom, very similar to what we find in the epistle to the Galatians. In that letter, Paul emphasizes ad nauseum that a person is justified before God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. It comes up again and again in Galatians. Furthermore, he declares things like, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Having been crucified with Christ, the Christian no longer lives by the law, or according to what Paul calls the flesh, but by the Spirit. And the Christian is made alive by the Spirit. Indeed, the entire Christian life can be called life in the Spirit. And to those who understand this great truth and possess this knowledge born of the Spirit, Paul ascribes the elevated title spiritual. Now, that term spiritual and the word it comes from spirit become highly contested words, especially in 1 Corinthians. So I like to introduce the Greek here just so it loses its familiarity in English. So in Greek, spirit, which can also mean breath or air, can also mean a very refined, elevated state of matter, like the sun. Um, it's pneuma, so where you get pneumatic tires, for example, pneuma. And these Christians who are spiritual are pneumatic Christians, or pneumaticoi. Now, this is important because it takes on almost a technical meaning for the Corinthians. So, these more understanding, knowledgeable Christians who embrace their freedom are pneumaticoi. From there, it's not too hard to see how a certain kind of Greek could come to the conclusion that faith and spirit are good, law and flesh are bad, and therefore there is no place for moral limits in the Christian life, for that would be a reversion to law. There is also no place for the flesh, now taken by these Greeks as simply meaning the body, and the perfective Christian lives by virtue of a spiritual pneumatike resurrection. It's entirely plausible if you're thinking, I have died with Christ, and I have been raised by the Spirit. In this view, all the benefits of salvation have already accrued to the believer in the present, without remainder. There is no room for a future hope in a bodily resurrection, because freedom in the Spirit and disdain for bodily concerns simply are what it means to live by the Spirit or to be pneumaticoi. Therefore, the pneumaticoi, spiritual, can either A, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, or B, stand above and beyond all bodily pleasure, even to the point of abstinence within marriage. These are both positions we see in the letter. Now, perhaps they believed that the soul would endure after death, but in any case, certain strains of Greek philosophy would have taught these Greeks to cheerfully let go of the body at death, 
like an anchor that had weighed down the soul. The outward sign of this perfected spiritual state is taken by them to be speaking in the tongues of angels, which in their minds represents a sort of exclusive benefit of the society of pneumatikoi. Of course, to arrive at these conclusions means ignoring lots of other things, Paul says elsewhere, but you get the idea. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul sets the record straight. It is at once the most simple, yet also the most profound message in the whole letter. There is, of course, no end of what we could say of this great mystery, this word Paul uses, mysterion, that God has seen fit to reveal to us through the precious words that our reader, Caroline, just recited. But the theme that befits Orthodox Easter and that the early Greek fathers of the church saw so intimately bound with resurrection is transfiguration, change, which is to say, by walking by faith in the spirit now, we are being transformed in an invisible way that looks forward to a day when we will be transformed in a most visible way. We will all be changed that is the mystery, the mysterion, the truth about God that was hidden in ages past, but now has been revealed in the new age by the Spirit. You may recall that in chapters 2 and 3, Paul wrote that among mature Christians, he and other apostles do impart a hidden wisdom in a mystery. Though the Corinthians, who fancied themselves spiritual and, and wise, they proved themselves to be anything but due to their strife and lack of Christian charity. Well, at this point, we have waited a long time for Paul to lay some mystery on us. Thirteen chapters, in fact. So here it is. Here's the big payoff, the moment we've been waiting for. Behold, he says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, that in a moment, an atomo in Greek, um, comes from the word that we get atom. It's so fast, it's indivisible. This indivisibly short moment of time. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Our transformation is upon us, the apostle writes. In fact, in Paul's mind, some will still even be alive in his own day when Jesus returns. Now, things didn't pan out quite like that, but if Paul sees it as imminent 2,000 years ago, it is now to millennia more imminent for us. And he says, at some point, Christ will return. Not all of us will be dead. But, and at the Lord's coming, one thing is for sure, dead or alive, we will be changed. Remember, Paul has to deal with a skeptical audience. They are all Christians that he's writing to, 
but they simply cannot believe that God has any interest in these earthly shells. In their minds, the body is a garment, like clothing, that you put on, but it is not intrinsic to it. It is a foreign accretion to the soul. Going at least as far back as Socrates in the 5th century BC, certain Greek philosophies had taught that death was to be greeted as a great benefit, as it liberated the soul from the body. Little wonder, then, that some Corinthian Christians posed to Paul what they saw as an absurd question. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? By asking that question, they are mocking the very idea of God raising dead bodies back to life in general. And in the first third of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, well, if that's the case, then why are we preaching that Christ was raised from the dead? So Paul shows that he is no fool, but his challengers are. You foolish person, he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body, a soma pneumaticon. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Therefore, God has created our bodies as part and parcel of who we are, these bodies we live in now, and along with the bodies of those who have died. But God made them as seeds. They are not our bodies in their totality. So on the one hand, it means they contain the entirety of who we are in one sense, in the sense that a seed contains all the genetic material, perhaps an ancient might say the form, of the plant that it is. In another sense, however, the seed represents a small fraction of the reality that it will one day become. Either way, it can be a tough pill to swallow, and not just then, but also now. Oftentimes, we cannot wait to be done with these physical bodies. They have a tendency not to act the way we want them to. We might find fault with our bodies because of our genes, or perhaps because of disease, maybe an accident, maybe something that happened to mother or child at childbirth. Maybe we're dissatisfied with them because of cultural expectations or simply the passage of time, the consequences of aging. But God values them dearly in all those cases. They may seem of small or little importance now, but that is because they are seeds. If you have never seen an oak tree before, you would never know what it looked like just by looking at an acorn. So it is with us. God has promised to all who believe in Jesus that they will be transformed like Jesus when he comes back. And we will live with him and fellow believers forever. From this gospel reality about our bodies, Paul concludes the chapter 
with maddening brevity. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's the practical application for all those verses. As short as it is, it is at least a much more positive formulation than verse 34, which was, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The future resurrection of the believer, in other words, renders our labor not in vain. It's what makes all the moral instruction, the Christian responsibility that 1 Corinthians is all about, it's what makes it all meaningful. In a sense, the Christian life prefigures what will happen when God transfigures us. And so, all those things that are done in the body take on immense importance. Whether it's the sexual escapades of chapter 5, the petty property and relation disputes of chapter 6, whether it's the marriage, divorce, and remarriage issues in chapter 7, or the eating meat sacrificed to idols in chapters 8 and 10, or scarfing down the food and wine at the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, and many more examples, all these things are meaningful because there is no such thing as mere bodies or mere bodily acts. Holiness in these matters now is itself, you could say, phase one, or seed phase, of our transfiguration. Christ's body itself was transfigured, you may remember if you've read any of the Gospels, even before he was resurrected. So it is with us. We experience a transfiguration now, not the final important one Paul describes at length in 1 Corinthians 15, but like Christ, when we ascend in holiness, we ascend with Christ up the mountain of transfiguration, and we are transformed gradually, but surely into the image of Christ. And then the big moment when the seed has taken root, in the twinkling of an eye, we become that oak tree and are no longer the acorn. And the thing that we could have never have envisioned, this glorious body, is now ours, just as it was with Christ. You know, there was a really interesting point that just occurred to me, actually, as we were reading the gospel um, from John, was how um, when Peter realizes it's the Lord and he runs out into the sea, he puts clothes on. Isn't that interesting? They're fishermen, and it just said that they had taken clothes off because they were doing work, you know, getting wet. Um, but to run into the sea to greet the Lord, Peter puts clothes on. So there's almost a parallel here between the disciple and the master, between Peter and Jesus. Jesus here is not easily recognizable because his body has been transformed. And so Peter, going to meet Jesus, puts on a garment. This is parallel to the language Paul uses, that when we are raised, we will be further clothed. The seed, kernel, will have something put on. So unlike this Greek idea that death makes you shed your clothes, 
you actually put something on. Imperishability, the spiritual body. Whatever any of this mysterious stuff means, it means we are like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the accidents of history, we get to celebrate again that your son was raised three days after he was crucified and that his resurrection vouchsafes ours. By the Spirit, we can walk in a way that is a resurrection pattern in a way that we become changed and transformed into the likeness of our master, our Lord, our savior, our spouse, and that you do not leave us as we are. And you do not force us to shed that which is part of us, but you cause us to become even more of who we are. We pray, God, that today, this week, and going forward, that you move in us to progress in holiness, that this seed phase, phase one of our transfiguration, would make us as much like Jesus as possible in this life, preparing us for things we cannot even imagine when he returns. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.